right, Shauna McDonald with Brookline PR. We are back with episode 10 of season two of our Beyond PR podcast. Now we took a little break over the summer, but we're back for the month of September, and I'm really excited about today's guest. Today's guest is the CEO and founder of Steel River Group, Trent Fiquette. Steel River Group um, works with Indigenous nations and groups to seek out and realize opportunities with industry, and I'm really excited to chat with him today. Hi, Trent. Hello, Shauna. Thanks for the invite today. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So I have been bugging you for some time to do this podcast. So I'm so excited that we finally got down to it. I told your assistant, Valerie, I'm going to over a bottle of wine when this actually happens. So note to myself, I will make that happen. So we've been working together for a little bit, but I would love for you know our listeners to hear about your story, about your venture, how you got to be where you are today, the CEO of Steel River Group. But you also come from East Coast Canada in a small Indigenous community called Pakashippi. Tell me about that journey. Yeah, thanks. I you know I come from a pretty unique part of Canada. It's um, it's a region of Canada called the Lower North Shore. So if you can picture Labrador and Newfoundland, there's a, a peninsula of Quebec that sticks out. It separates those two two parts of Canada, and, and I'm from that area. It's uh, it's very 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 unique. There's all the cultures of Little Canada that really started in, through this region. So yeah, my heritage is is Inuit actually, very nomadic through that region. And then in the region, there's um, you know there's 13 small villages in the French primarily to English primarily to an Inuit community to a reserve community. Uh, so it's a very 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 rich rich history in the region, and I'm pretty proud to come from there. You know, I left very young when I grew up and yet today the area is extremely remote. There's no road access. You only can fly into our community or, uh, or take a boat ferry um, a system in, in the summertime. I, when I was growing up, you couldn't finish high school in the region. So if you wanted to do any education past grade nine, you had to go out and, and go into a major center, whether it was Quebec City or, or in Ontario, depending where family was. For me, I ended up going out into the Quebec region and finishing my high school. And from there, uh, found this sport called football that motivated me to stay in school a little longer. <laughs> and then uh, once I was done my, my post education, I moved out west right away. And, uh, came out all the way across Canada to the Yukon, and a lot of that reasons there because of family. A lot of our family is peppered all across the north. Probably the first 15 years of my career across the north, building everything from hospitals to the commodity industry to the mining, diamond industry, uh, all in construction, working for some great companies. And then uh, maybe different than most, I actually transplanted to come south into Fort McMurray and, and paid my dues up there on large projects on oil gas and for a great company, JV Driver and. And then, um, you know, I actually started a company um, about 12 years ago, a construction company, and I actually built our current business model over 12 years ago. I tried to enact it, and I just kind of got caught up into not being able to produce this business model at a time for a bunch of different reasons. Maybe the market wasn't ready for it, maybe I wasn't ready for it, and ended up just developing another construction company and ended up selling it off a few years later and then uh, continue my career into construction with a couple of great companies, like Core and Sarah's Pipeline. And, and about uh, five years ago, I uh, decided for a multitude of reasons, it was time to pull this business plan off the shelf, change it quite a bit, and then start at Steel River Group. When we started Steel River Group five years ago, it, it wasn't uh, the plan in the first five years was not what we achieved in the first five years. The main goal was for us to enact some quote-unquote secret sauces that we developed or I developed uh, over the years, whereby I could go in and help support communities and listen to the needs and wants. But... I believe there's such things as a silver bullet. 
when it comes to our nation and communities can be successful, whatever that success ends up being defined as, uh, and is whereby the community decides that they want to and have the wherewithal and the commitment to combine the three key pillars of a community, which is the culture of a community. Inside of that, the politics of a community, which, you know, you, the minute you say politics, you might get a sense, okay, there's a negative tendency to inside of indigenous community with politics, but it's exact opposite. Politics is part, deep part of the culture and the communication and, and how we trade and how we do business. And so then it's also linked into outside of the traditional, you think cultural need inside of the community. And then a social asset, obviously inside of indigenous communities in Canada, there's some deep-rooted concerns and issues and topics around the social aspects of the community. But then it's also kind of where, where we can go in the future. And then economic benefits. And the two senses of the economic benefits. You know, there's, there's communities who want a geographic lottery, and there's communities that have not. And But if you synergize those three things, a community can become extremely, extremely powerful as they look to the outside world and, and try to align better with, with government and industry. So that's, that's the, was the genesis of our model of the Steel Room Group. And obviously, we've turned into a little more than that in the last five years. Yeah, absolutely. So let me take a step back as you kind of talk through your journey. So when I first met you, it was with Iron Coalition, which was an Indigenous group trying to find a stake in the TMX pipeline and uh, met you through a few different contacts that way. But even prior to that, you had significant experience in the pipeline industry. You obviously had worked or had seen a lot of what was going on in Indigenous communities then, but what really made you break away from that and start Steel River Group? I think for me, over the over the years, in working for some phenomenal companies, whether it was purely project-based or as I got into the executive roles, you know, I had, I had some consistent success where I was able to make projects successful and I was able to make divisions of companies or companies successful. And when I looked at that, I looked at, well, why? Um, you know, I'm not special, no more special than any other leader that probably were in the businesses. What I found was maybe there was some, some uniqueness in some of my leadership philosophies. You know, a lot of, a lot of groups, I think, talk about uh, people being important, but that's fine. But really, really, how do you, how do you take that from, oh, people are important to, transplant that into a culture of a business and all your leadership philosophies kind of building around that foundation of people and relationships. So, you know, I, I decided to, at a, you know, I was coming into my early 40s and figured if, if I'm going to take the big leap, this would be a great time. <laughs> if it all fails, I can go back. still young enough to continue my career. Cool. Uh, but if, if it could be what I thought it could be, then you know, I thought we could grow a pretty interesting company. So I decided decided to branch up on my own and see if I could do it for myself. And uh, I guess a little bit of a testament in the last five years is the success of it. But it all goes back to, you know, the people that decided to join this this vision of mine. And keep in mind, five years ago, our, our business vision was it's not necessarily what people would see it today. It was a big gamble, a big risk in a lot of people's lives. Um, uh, a lot of people didn't think the business concept and the ecosystem model would be successful, but that's okay. Uh, that's what I think a lot of entrepreneurs go through is that, you know, that uh, there's lots of roadblocks when you're trying to start a business. Uh, but, you know, those, the people that end up joining early and then the partnership model and the different company structures that we've developed to bring in people, you know, that have an invested interest in the businesses, not just being employees. And then in turn, all the relationships, you know, the years and years of relationships that the people brought to the business. And then those outside relationships really appreciating our model and wanting to make us successful just became, you know, the snowball that we couldn't stop. I think you're being a little bit humble here, though, because you say when I start a business, but in your world, it's business says 
Like I look at your sub companies, you've got Steel River Solutions, Steel River Energy Services. You've also got Water Care Company, which I want to talk about because I think that's extraordinarily interesting. And I think this was also on the heels of things need to be done differently in Indigenous communities and you coming in and say, how can we help? So can you talk to me about this water care initiative that you're working on? So for me, culturally, water is extremely, extremely, extremely important. We grew up on a, on a river. That river was a lifeblood for, for everything we did. Like yet today, we still probably live 80% off the land. But the, river, the water is so, so, so important. So actually, when I opened up the business, about a year after I opened the business, I went back to my small community and kind of forgotten literally where we're at in the world and we're still pumping raw sewage out into our river and this was a godsmack event to me where wow i, I didn't realize you know i i do realize that obviously across canada where the situation we're in remote communities uh we're drinking water wastewater i don't think where any of us want to be so you know we did home pretty hard when i when i went back home and realized okay I got to be able to find a solution to this. So we literally started designing some new technology about two and a half years ago. Found a bunch of interesting partners that were, you know, trying to introduce new technology to us. And or, you know, we at the end of the day we decided to just branch out and, and take the time to build out our own technology. So what we created was a modular concept around water treatment. So the first phase of that is wastewater treatment, and we just finished off the our first pilot project. We just have it deployed here in Stony. Uh, we just got support from Alberta Innovates. So we're very, very, very proud of this technology. And the next wave of this technology is going to be around uh, uh, water treatment itself. Very cool. Do you see that growing, you know, across the oh, country? 100% water is top of mind. I think you can even see that in the last week or so in, in the election platform. There's a lot of, I say, a lot of interest around all the Indigenous issues. I think I might say I'm a little disappointed in, in what has come across so far in the, in the federal election from the, from the candidates, but I think um, you'll see a little bit of a shift in that. They close out their platforms, but, you know, issues around remote communities, food insecurity, you know, the connection with the wildlife, and wildlife reclamation, versus uh, the water situation. I, I just think it's a very, very, very relevant and important topic in the upcoming decade. You brought up the federal election, so I'm going to ask the question. So I, I don't, you don't need to tell me which way you're leaning. Perhaps that's a totally different conversation. But whoever does, you know, come into power on September 20th for our country, what do they, what in your mind as an Indigenous leader, um, an Indigenous entrepreneur who's been very successful, but also goes into communities where they need more, what would you say to our new Prime Minister, whoever that may be on September 20th? You know, I think if you look through the lens of what a community wants, I guess, Stop stop making assumptions. You know, really take the time to, to get into the communities and really listen. And I think there's a lot of that dialogue that's gone over the years. And just listening is one thing and now sitting back and actually turning that in actions. You know, making commitments on solving the water issue and, and not achieving those commitments. So there's so many resources in Canada as far as companies, engineering groups, construction firms. If you set a huge mandate that you think is impossible to achieve, and then you're not willing to quarterback that to actually make it come to fruition, then you're probably not going to achieve it. But if you look inside of Canada, I guarantee you, if you look out over the next four to five, ten years at water and, and the water problem, and or clean drinking water, and, and then uh, wastewater solutions is a mandate, then absolutely it can be achieved. So. You know, I would say, you know, listen, find out what truly the, the community needs once. You know, and we're talking a lot about what the issues now in remote communities. There's also a ton of issues throughout all the communities. So really understanding what they are 
and then put a conscious effort to actually achieve some of these goals. I think all the all the the parties are consistent in wanting to achieve the indigenous goals. So it, it doesn't become political. It doesn't come over a four year term. Look at all the problems like the indigenous communities look at. Look over the forty year term and really stay consistent on. And I and I believe, you know, I, I believe whatever party comes in right now, there's going to be a conscious effort to put the indigenous issues to the forefront. I, I truly believe that. I don't think there's going to be a lot of stumbling if one group shifts over the next month versus the next four years versus the next 10 years. I don't think there's an option to that, to be honest with you. I think what has happened over the last year, and maybe even starting in the last three or four years before that, but a little bit of a, you know, some different motivation and some, some things that happened this past year, that all things need to lead to the lens of Indigenous communities. You know, one of the things that I say often enough is you know, a little bit of understanding our identity. What, what's our identity as Canadians? If you go anywhere across the world, there's people indigenous to the land and people not indigenous to the land. And you go out of your way if you're flying into Italy to, to understand the Italian culture and what to do about it. Russia, East India, wherever. But when you come to Canada, what do you research? What do you want to understand? What's the identity that you really want to know? And I think what I see and I'm pretty proud of is that Canada is starting to look on the world front. Is that our identity is our indigenous. And if we can really grasp that and get control of of that concept. And I think internally inside of Canada and the world coming into Canada, we'll start seeing everything through the lens of Indigenous communities and nations first. And I think that brings me to my next question is, you know, we are in the month of September. September 30th has now been, you know, announced as a a National Truth and Reconciliation Day. I want to ask you more the question, how do you think Canadians can move forward in supporting, you know, allyship with Indigenous peoples? Like in your mind, what's the best way forward and how do we make sure that we recognize that? This is a tough one for me because, you know, this is a powerful, powerful subject and it's uh, a lot of people have a lot of opinions and there's a lot of great leaders out there that people should listen to and try to understand and understand their points rather than mine. You know, if I can add anything for me, there's a real movement right now of really trying to understand indigenous culture. I think I've read it in a book, I don't know if it was Bob Joseph or, or some, you know, great uh, intellect when it comes to this particular question or other questions of life. You know, it's not what we need to learn about indigenous culture. It's probably what we need to unlearn about indigenous people and indigenous culture. And if we could take the time to maybe to unlearn some of the things that we think we may or may not know would be a great start. I think uh, th- this is universal and not necessarily unique to Indigenous culture, but the whole adage of just a listen, just truly, 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 truly listen. It's not all about trying to partake and coming up with solutions. It's really sitting back and listening. And once we truly listen and understand the history and, and, uh, and all the different complexities that rolls up under this title called Truth and Reconciliation, then I think companies can step back and see, well, okay, now how can I participate? You know, don't change your colors just because you want to participate. You know, understand, listen, and then decide consciously if there's alignment between you know, your corporate goals, your core values, and, and, and how you can link into maybe being a small part of, of moving forward. I like that. Thank you for that. One of the other things that you've been quite vocal about, and I think it's amazing as as a leader, is the the ability to discuss mental health. And you've talked to me about this before. You bring it up in your organization. First of all, I want to hear about, you know, why is that something that you care so much about? But also, why do you think it's an important topic to be, to be really informed about? Well, I guess I'll ask... I'll answer the second question first. Uh, I'm a student of the mind, but I'm not a scientist. I'm not a psychiatrist. So I, I'm not going to revert back uh, what you can find on the Google about the mind. But, you know, obviously your mind and your uh, mental strength links 
everything in the world, everything that you do, all your surroundings, your physical, your emotional, your spiritual, everything links through the power of your mind. So, you know, ensuring that's healthy is beyond common sense. It's beyond, you know, what you need to accept if you want to truly take care of yourself. For me, it took me a long time to realize that. It was all looking through the lens of physical health and, and then emotional, really emotional links in through you know, the balance of your spiritual and your, and your mental health. But, yeah, when I, when I really went through some trauma in my life, whether early, whether mid-age, uh, it all links back to making you stronger, making you, you know, more jaded, whatever that is. But at the end of the day, you know, about 12 years ago, when I had a, a, one of my best friends pass away, it really, really, really took a, a toll on me and took me right off kilter for, for a couple of years. And the only way I can get back on track was really trying to understand my mind and how it worked and how it supported my physical, emotional, and spiritual balance. And, and it was quite a journey. And then, obviously, you know, other when you, when you look through life and you, you have a direct or indirect trauma around either uh, you know, drug abuse or alcoholism or any kind of trauma, whether it's through an accident that affected your mind or other incidents that might get you off kilter. All those things roll up to mental health. Have you ever heard Sheldon Kennedy speak? You know, he's the first person I really wrap my head around that conversation where all of it boils up to mental health. And he's absolutely right. And it just took me, you know, took me a little bit longer to realize that. And over the last 12 years, I've been you know, a student of, of mental health and, and inside of our business, inside of our culture, inside of my leadership strategy, we're very vulnerable about mental health. And it's, it is what it is. It's a, it's a key part of your overall caring for yourself and your overall well-being. Awesome. Okay. So just to wrap up here, you've also mentioned in the past that you kind of deal in terms of the two Fs, family and fitness. And I assume that also kind of is under or works within the mental health kind of capacity from a family perspective, from a business perspective. The family fitness, talk to me about that. As you can see, I try to keep everything extremely dumbed down and <laughs> uncomplex. So <laughs> if you roll up into two, like number one is just to say fitness. And in my brain, the way I easily can complex that is that I, I can stay fit overall if the four aspects of my life are balanced, which is my physical fitness, my mental health, um, my emotional health, and my spiritual health. So that's, that's the fitness side, the one half uh, that I try to always base on. So, you know, very consistently day by day, I, I ensure, you know, I wake up early in the morning at four o'clock so I can work on my physical health because all the rest of the day's hours are not mine. Uh, their families or my, their work, I want to say family, I'll get that in a second. <laughs> you know, we, we meditate, we have spiritual advisors, you know, you know, you can talk to people about your mental, you know, I have mentors on the business side, mentors on, you know, my mental side to ensure that, you know, my, my mental and intellectual and emotional are always strong. So you just got to keep doing that. It's all about care. If you care about yourself, you're going to put that effort in doing it. You're going to figure it out. And time is never going to be an excuse. Um, you just, it's, it's excuses are self-imposed roadblocks. So if you take those roadblocks away, what's left is you. And after you, there's a, there's, you know, your spouse, you know, there's the outside world. So as busy as I know you are, you're committed to physical fitness every day, 4 a.m.? 100%. Yeah, 100%. Wow. Impressive. And then the family piece. For me, there's no such thing as two people. There's only one person. That's you. So you can have a personal life and a work life. There is just family. Uh, there's your personal family. There's you know your you and your immediate family. There's extended family. And then there's your work family. And I'm not going to say they're all equal in all instances, but they're all equally important. And you got to balance all of those relationships as a family. If you look to the lens that you try to set priorities are much more important, um, you just got to ensure that you always have your time in your day or your week or your months allocated so you can um, 
ensure that all your family is is, is healthy. So the health on, on your personal, which is the first half, and health on everybody on the outside world, which is the second half, excuse me, which is the problem. And look, and, you know, I'm standing on a soapbox with a, with a rock in my hand inside of a glass house when I say, you know, when I talk about this, because, you know, COVID, other things, all these things that, you know, busy business gets you off kilter and, and uh, sometimes you, you, you step away from these things and you're not as balanced as you want to portray out to other people. But, you know, it's, it's always nice to step back and having a good kind of a consistent, simple way of looking at things that can always get you recentered. So you, you bring up COVID and, and it's been a it's a been a theme in, in many conversations. But what could you tell me what's next for Steel River Group as we kind of hopefully emerge from where we are today? What's next? All, all I would say is, uh, maybe I'll give you a little bit of color, some insight. But all I would say, you know, when you look at huge events in the world, and it's funny enough, we just went past this last week in the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. When you look at 9-11, and you look at when coming into 9-11, what did the world look like? Coming over with 9-11, what did the world look like? And you see things that will never, ever, ever be the same again. They'll just, literally, things will disappear that you'll never achieve again. There's things that will always stay the same. You know, people going back on airplanes became the same. If not. And then there's things that will make a bit, like major events that will change the industry as far as what you'll always do again, what you always end up doing different. The security in airports, remember 21 years ago? You can just walk in the airport and you have the you know, full water bottle and all the food and you want. And the, like security will never, ever be the same. So I think COVID, you know, and what I'll offer up to entrepreneurs is the exact same analogy. Is what was the world like coming into COVID? Was the world going to be like coming out of COVID? And I think if you look through that lens, you'll, you'll see inside of your business what things that you can maybe, you know, adjust around those three kind of silos. For us, uh, I think, um, you know, we'll always be what we are as far as uh, look, always looking through the lens of our nation partners. So as we see things through our nation partners, uh, we see where we're probably going to end up uh, focusing a lot of our efforts. We're always going to be in construction. We're, all, we're going to look at rolling up more companies in, underneath that umbrella. You'll, you're going to see us getting a lot more involved in the development uh, with our nation partners, so building out the communities, uh, whether it's on resort development, whether it's in the renewable space, whether it's in uh, just development on in community, on reserve, and traditional territories development. And we know about some of the partnerships we have there, and there's some some interesting announcements going to come in once come around that space. Outside of that, we're, we're going to look at the environmental space, but we're going to look through it through a different lens. Uh, we're going to not look it through the lens. We're going to look through the lens of water. We're going to look through the lens of, of some other other spaces, uh, especially around what I think is one of the most important things, which is our wildlife. Uh, we're going to be looking through that lens and, and making a few announcements on that in next year. And then we're going to be um, looking at taking our model offshore, so bring our model down into states and bring it into other areas that are um, – that the indigenous groups of the region are, are I think, can, are, are going to look to bolt on to some of our concepts, whether that's New Zealand, whether that's Australia, whether that's in some other places. Just to name a few things. <laughs> Trent, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I know, I know how busy you are, and I appreciate you taking the time to do this, especially during this month and, and having that conversation with me. So thank you again. Really appreciate it. No worries, my dear. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Beyond PR and don't forget to subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts.